Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Flail Forward. I am your host, Fred, and with me this week, I have a Karas Naur. The one and only. The one and only. I have the Catrice. The two and only. Mm. <laughs> I have the Cavoir. I hope it's the one we right now. <laughs> we have... Um, well, there's a lot of guys named Mark, but we'll we'll say he's the Mark in in terms of this. Perfect. I guess <laughs> I guess you could also call me Jonathan's evil twin if you wanted. John, yeah, Jonathan's evil twin. Jonathan is too tired tonight to uh, do both voices, so we only have Mark. Um, but <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, we also have the Rob, the three in one. And um, possibly going to say words is the Mel. Hello. That's I'm married to that lady. So, <laughs> yep. Nice thing. Uh, good on you, Rob. Or good job. You know she can defend herself. Whatever. Hush. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but okay. Anyway, beyond that, tonight we are talking about meta roles. Um, so these are the roles that we as players, in a general sense, occupy around the table. Um, so roles we occupy um, when we're playing characters, roles we the role we occupy as uh, GM, um, and what those mean, how those interact, and what we do with them. So, because we are again talking about a nebulous role-playing game topic um, that many people disagree on what they mean, we should define... What we're trying to talk about here, and we're probably going to argue about it a little bit, but first off, shocking. I want to... Yeah, shocking. Us arguing? Crazy. Uh, <laughs> but first, I think we should define kind of what we think these roles are um, and how we think they apply in general. Obviously, roles will differ from game to game to a certain extent, um, and we'll talk about that uh, as we get along. But... Yep. We should start with um, what... It, let's start with the GM role. Um, well, the GM or the DM or the tell word or whatever the hell the game calls MC's it. popular... Uh, MC, yeah. <laughs> guide, story guide, storyteller. Yeah. Storyteller. Uh, fucking, yeah. Like, oh, there's a million turns for them. Yeah. <laughs> uh... uh that's one of my favorites. Nice. But we should talk. We we should first before we get any further, we should say what we're talking about by way of example. So mostly, what we're gonna the traditional way of framing it is players and GMs or players and DMs. And mm-hmm. how you just talked about it was players as the big umbrella term, including the GM. Yes, because we're all sitting around the table, right? And I think mm-hmm. that's a good way of defining it because that's gonna make. That's going to make blurring that distinction easier later. And uh, so I think that's a useful thing to get out ahead of. Um, and so, but then we need another word for the non-GM players because we can't, as Carr was saying prior to this, we can't just call them players and then also call the GM a player because that will get confusing. Absolutely. And I do believe um, I'm going to take Carr's thunder on this, but I will credit him. Um, because I do believe it was Carr who said that um, cast as the uh-huh. theatrical term would make sense. And I, I agree with that. Um, yeah. That cast for the what we normally call players, those who 
are not the GM sitting around the table playing player characters, mm-hmm. um, player, you know, player character, you know, one character or multiple and call them the cast. Is in- mm-hmm. Yeah. The, since the, this whole framing device that we're using is kind of the opposite of how most people conceive it. Yeah. Where mm-hmm. we've got player as the top level term and then GM under that. And then <clears throat> next yeah. to that, yeah. We've got cast instead of player, mm-hmm. which is actually how most people think of it. So yeah, cast yeah. are the what most people would call players who are portraying the protagonists in the fiction. Yeah, they're portraying the actually if we wanted to be more specific, there's a you could call them kind of the main cast. Um that yeah, I don't I think main cast is good because protagonist doesn't always cover it. Yeah, because uh, because role playing games are so broad, sometimes they act as antagonists or at least something that isn't distinctly a protagonist. Right. Sometimes your aspects oh. also. Bluebeard's Bride is a really good example of that. You're playing yeah. aspects of the same person, so it's not really clear that there's there's. I mean, well, there's a protagonist, Blue- but that you're playing. Bluebeard's one, Bride is. Bluebird's Bride is an edge case, so I don't think we need to cater to it. But, mm, but for the main thing, we can just get away with calling it cast. Cast is fine. Cast and works cast, with Bluebird. Yeah, cast I think works fine. Because the PCs are the protagonists of their own story, whether or not they're doing good or bad things. Yeah, true. Well, yes. Yeah. Uh, um, the main problem with calling it cast is the GM is playing all the extras and, you know, people... The, yeah, that's, the, that's the, why the, I said... I but, actually like the idea of GM as crew. Yeah, that's actually... Mm. They're the ones setting the scenes, so... Well, but the well, GM still plays characters that would... The GM is crew under. and extras and director and set decorator mm. and pretty much everybody except the main cast so it's mm-hmm. production they're, studio they're, yeah mm. i mean kind of right i mean production studio is not like not a bad analogy you are doing pretty much everything except what the main actors are doing when they show up i mean yeah. uh, like traditional traditionally speaking traditionally speaking not always, yeah. not all games. Like 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 GMless game like the so-called GMless games, where so that's where this distinction of like cast and and GM starts to break down a little bit where, where the GMing duties are distributed amongst multiple people. Uh and sometimes not all at once or at the same time. Yeah. Um so to actually to back up a bit, I think maybe we what I think we might want to do real quick um is uh justify our use of player as something that covers everybody at the um because i think some people playing at the table may this yeah uh that is i mean that is my entire justify (laughs) yeah that's the hope is that it's a shared fun experience Mm -hmm. yeah and there's this there's this idea of the um gm as uh, I don't know job. what to call this. Like, as more of a job, yeah, more as like a service almost. There is a bit more work in preparation generally for whoever does GM work, but 
I mean, that's becoming a lot less than it used to be for most cases, unless you're playing, like, OSR games, but even so, I mean, like, you're not really having a situation where the GM is doing this purely as a job in most cases, unless you literally are hiring a GM. Most of the time, it's like the GM finds like a lot of the the preparation to actually be enjoyable. Yeah, and the yeah. the preparation is play to a certain extent. Yeah, it's pregame stuff. The a lot of people wonder or ponder about how to make the GM fun. And I think a lot of that comes from the just flat out wrong notion that the GM has the same interaction with the game as the cast. They don't. And for Honestly, a lot of GMs, they they don't want the same experience as the players. Not always. Like, a lot of GMs do want to be a player now and then. Like, a lot of the time, like, they do want to have that separate set of things. Like, you usually get the GM as somebody who actually likes to just tell stories or build new worlds and stuff like that. Or just, like, for me, I just like having a table of suckers that I can do whatever I want to, you know? <laughs> I can fuck with, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> just get a table of people and you're like, hi, you have all made these nice characters. I am going to fuck with them for the next three hours. <laughs> have fun. And we do. This is why some people assume that the GM role is a power fantasy trip. <laughs> Except it's like, it's super not, because they spend the entire time fucking with me, so... Yeah, it, it, it's the standard thing about power, is that the person who has the, the power is usually... Yeah, it's, it's usually the bottom is the, the one in control. I'm, I'm saying the GM is the power bottom. Hmm. Actually, I think that you're saying the reverse of that. Let's, let's, yeah, let's you're, saying the, <laughs> you're saying the cast is, actually. Oh, uh, yes, you are correct. I got my terms mixed. Yeah, sorry. You're right. Um, anyway, wow. moving on from, like, sex analogies. Um, no, right. that's not going to happen. Another Another aspect of the traditional view of the GM role especially in terms of its interaction with the cast role, is a lot of early games set up those two roles to be antagonistic. Yeah. Yeah, opposition. Yep. Adversarial, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, adversarial. And not so much on the cast side, because in a lot of early games, like, it was pretty much... All the power moves were defined for the GM, and the cast was pretty much at their mercy. So it was really one-sided, and it's easy to see where mm, animosity toward the towards the GM role can come from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to play those games as they're written, and a deeper understanding of just accordingly. To be fair, almost no one plays games as they're written. Yeah, well, most games are not written with that with an e- a table ethos in mind. 
not explicitly, but there are still some games that the undercurrent is there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying none. I'm just saying most. I'm, I'm, I'm saying like there's generally there's not a. Um, uh, it's handed to you as a toolkit, not a designed experience. And you're the quality of the experience is based on the amount of effort sometimes that you put into a lot of the pregame stuff rather than the game itself. And I think that's that's actually the friction point is that there's sometimes there's a disproportionate amount of effort for in-game reward that I think is what either drives people away or makes it difficult for people um, when they're when they first take on that role and real and don't realize yet that they can really just make it up as they go. Um, mm -hmm. A lot so of people if, have issues with doing that as well, especially if there's certain in like a lot of the games, it is partially a design aspect that many of the games are set up in such a way that it's really difficult to make stuff up as you go along. Like yeah. if you look at like, if you're trying to play Shadowrun based as it's written and it's like, okay, we want to fight these guys. It's like, oh, great. Um, right. This might be a while while I write up the uh, stat blocks. Right. Or you could just say, uh, I know that he's got six dice in his good pools and three dice in his shit pools. All right, we're good. Like, really, that's what you can do, like in Shadowrun. You can just say, I'm, his, his, his good rolls are going to be six dice and his good bad rolls are going to be three dice. And, and the players will not know the difference. Yeah, it's, and it's harder for them to know the difference. Yeah. yeah, experienced GMs know that they it doesn't really matter how closely they adhere to the rules when set up setting up NPCs. Like you don't have to do it beforehand. It no. won't matter to the players ultimately, unless you have a gamist group that expects everything to be perfectly correct. You know, that right. doesn't matter to the story you're telling. No, what happens. The problem is it can matter, but like it has you have to you, you can either you can you can either make those things matter as a result of a confluence of fictional facts, or you can make them matter like in a post hoc way jet by just delivering the fictional facts. So you could say, okay, um, I statted these guys out. I know what their equipment is like down to the last dollar they spent and um, you know, they don't have gas masks. So if the players throw gas grenades, like these guys are totally screwed or you could do what blaze in the dark does and say, and say something like, well, we, we roll this. It goes really well. Oh, they didn't have gas masks. Uh -huh. And you've achieved the, the same outcome. One, you did a lot more effort to get to the outcome. And so I question the degree to which that effort is necessary at all. So exactly I... like my, my favorite thing to tell GMs to tell new GMs is fake it until you have to make it. So I have a question. I, my, my question is what does this have to do with meta roles? Um, well, because it's a task that, that you're asking one of the metal roles to undertake for the others, right? Mm -hmm. One of so, the players. One of the players, yeah. 
one of the players you're asking, one of the players to undertake a meta role, the guide GM in this case, for the heightened enjoyment of the other players, of the other, uh, of the other players, yeah, of the cast. Uh, so there's a bigger ask on that part from the game. And I feel as a designer, you want to reduce that ask to the absolute minimum. And I feel like a lot of games don't acknowledge that principle. Well, the kind of the other side of that is not only is the GM role a bigger ask, it's also more of a provider role because you're the GM facilitates almost the entire experience for everyone, right. including yeah. themselves. Yeah. Whereas for about the same amount, each of the cast is consuming the experience much more than they're producing it. Right. Traditionally, yes. I think I think there are more games that where they allow um the cast to have more agency and to have narrative control beyond like the border of their character's skin um mm -hmm. and uh a seventh c is a good example of that it lets you introduce facts into the narrative and uh, with dice uh, houses of the blood is another one that i remember where the role like when you make a role in houses of the blooded uh you get to decide if you succeed you decide the outcome and every success past the first gives you um, a, an additional clause to your sentence. So you can embellish for every success. And that allows you to in inject more, you have more fictional, like literal narrative control in those moments. That's an interesting, That's cool. uh, yeah. That's pretty interesting the way they, they handle it. <clears throat> or he, rather, it's John Wick's game. Uh, but uh I think I actually find that really annoying having to count your sentences and it's like, can I just use like yes. run on sentences? Because I kind of do that naturally anyway. No. <laughs> Stop. We're gonna we're gonna post one of your Reddit posts uh, in the link for this episode. Just so people understand. So people understand why we all laughed. <laughs> <laughs> because it will be um 3000 words and there will be three periods. Yeah, make sure you pick the one. There's at least four or five. Make sure you Yes. Make sure you pick one that that has required two self replies because it's that long and it hits the post limit. Catrice, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, we only say this because we love you. Interesting fun fact, most forums that are based on, you know, like BB code have a 30,000 character limit. I might have tested. I, we're, we're not surprised. I mean, I'm sure you've tested, but I'm sure you didn't intend to test that. <laughs> no. no, it was yeah, not we're... intentional. It just... <laughs> um, okay, so the one role that we haven't talked about defining um necessarily is character role um this one <sighs> shit is, i bring this up is and the, i don't even know if we can define it um we can define it it's the only meta role that exists entirely within the fiction 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I uh, fuck. I don't have anything else to say to that. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> good talk. All right. <laughs> good, good. Yeah. All right. Good discussion, team. All right. Get them. I guess. I guess. What is like what? I wrote is, like a page wait, and a half wait, wait, on wait, wait. in my game. I know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, let let Mark. Talk. I was gonna like get us to talk about it because why why is this distinct from the player role or the cast? Role? Just uh, because it's it's the it's the player inhabiting a self other than them other than their own. So yeah, um, hmm. so that's an interesting I'm playing thing. OSR. Yeah, because then you have this, um, you have everybody around the table. I, I think we should, because I think the um, the G, the GM also inhabits these uh, character roles, although they inhabit multiple genres. Mm-hmm. Um, but so you've got all the players around the table are inhabiting your real world roles, which are either your cast roles or your crew slash GM slash whatever the hell else role. And then with inside the fiction, you have another role, which is your character role, which is the, you know, the character and the thing that you use to interact with the fiction, which is connected to, but distinct from your self, your player or your cast or your player role in general player being the actual people who are sitting around the table as a whole. Right. Well, the, yeah, I mean, because the, the character is a players because the GM does this too. A character is a player's avatar inside the fiction. Mm-hmm. Okay. But they, yeah. And they have, um, you know, they have distinct roles within the, within the group, um, you know, and they, and they occupy their own space. That is, um obviously informed by the the player or the players i should hmm. say they're um, like a ligament yeah yeah they are they're, they're a connection to the fictional world like that's how they're your they're your your hands your 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 mouth all your connective tissue is like connected to that fictional world through that character or characters mm-hmm. or aspect of characters yeah it's like you're you're reaching into this this space, um, but you are then also um, you have restrictions on your hand, mm-hmm. um, or your hands are different than the ones you normally have, um, yeah. so to speak. That's why it's a role playing um, game, right? Because you're playing yeah. with all different hands. Yeah, yeah. Because you you know you you're a whatever you're you're me, and you're a a white male. And you're sitting at the table, and you've got two usable hands, and you're playing a um, three foot tall dwarf who's got who's missing two who's missing a finger on each hand because he uses explosives or something. And so you're interacting with the world with his stubby um, eight fingers rather than your kind of longer ten fingers. Um, if my messy analogy <laughs> makes any sense. What the fuck are you talking about? I mean, I mean, yes, I've seen those characters, so I know you're right. But like, like a, buddy just, mine, a buddy of mine I, played a uh, a dwarf uh, paraplegic 
because it was GURPS and he wanted to be a psychic. And so he just like took a bunch of like horrible disadvantages. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just mind melded with dude. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But yes, I've seen that. Oh, um, yeah. I was just trying to, to make the hands distinct. Um, yes. Yes. But and I assume dwarves have stubby fingers, at least compared to mine, um, because I have fairly long fingers. Uh, because I'm I'm six feet tall, I'm not three feet tall. Cool. <laughs> uh, thanks, Rob, for making fun of me. Uh, make fun of yourself, dude. I didn't do anything. Yeah, yeah. You just you just pushed the audience to make sure that I, they knew. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, <clears throat> so uh, continuing on. So now that we know basically what character role is. Um, I think we need to talk about because these roles that we have been talking about are not always as distinct as we have been saying they are. Um, like I, we, we've we've alluded to this as we've been going along. Um, the 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 cast role and the GM role are often kind of intermingling, um, especially in more modern games. Um, I beg to differ on where you're going with this. I think oh, they shit. are distinct. Hold on. I think they are distinct for when you're in the game, but mm-hmm. a but it's very difficult for a layperson observer to see when any particular person jumps from role to role. Hmm. So you're you're um, saying basically that um, people that these players around the table um, in because I, I was saying players around the table have an assigned role. They have a cast role or they have a GM role, and sometimes they kind of dip into the other role a little bit. But what you're saying is that they have these general roles. But then sometimes they switch roles. They go from cast to GM or crew or whatever for a little bit. And then they switch back to cast. Well, yeah, because a GM in one statement can jump can jump from narrator to NPC and back to narrator completely fluidly. And you you can only see when that happens when you're actually engaged with the game or you're experienced enough to to know when to observe it. And even, even the cast jump between being cast. That's the meta conversation and the, their characters, which is a fiction conversation just as easily. Right. But that I, 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 I'm not sure you really only need to experience it one time to be able to tell the difference because it's generally when they switch from first to third person will will signal the the switch um you know uh, there they, there's a or if they start talking in second person to other players then then they're generally generally talking as their character to that other character um or about That's that other gener- character that's generally true, but it is dependent on playstyle and how how people like to use the different voices. That's that's true. That's true. I, yeah, I, sure, sure. I, I've encountered both kinds where people say my character is going to go do X, 
and some people say I'm going to go do X and they mean the same thing. Right. And to an outside observer, someone right. saying I'm going to go do X, like on the surface, that means I, the self is going to go do X. So you have to take the entire thing in context to know if it's real or fictional. Right. Which is an, an additional parsing step of the statement. Yeah. And certain statements you hope are fictional. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like sometimes it's obvious, like when somebody says, I'm going to murder all these kobold babies. Yeah, you really hope that that's going to be fiction. You hope so, yeah. Because otherwise, where did all these kobold babies come from in the real world? Hmm. But mm, maybe I, they just drew some teeth on some real babies. I don't know. If we're um, moving it back to design, I think that there is a. <laughs> Thanks, a you're welcome. Uh, I am the host after all. Um, there is a space in design where you can um, you if you you know you have knowledge of these roles and you can. Um, I guess if we're if we're using the way Carr is talking about it, where people switch between these roles, um, we can give um, these roles more liberty to switch between them. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, so we can give uh, we can allow players uh, an easier you know an easier time to um, kind of slip into that GM role and to utilize some of those tools. Mm -hmm. Or we can make them more distinct and make sure that the player and the GM, you know, have totally different pulleys and levers um, that they're touching and using. Right. Um, or, you know, and there's, I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch of different set, setups here. Um, but I think that that is the Im important part in which we, how you set it up is going to affect your game. And so what, that's what I, I want. I think we want to focus on is what do those setups mean and how do you, you know, when do you use them? Why do you use them? And what does that mean? Right. I think, I think that's an important thing to discuss in any design context because you have to design your experience to face the role you're intending the player to take on, you know? So if you want to um, facilitate the player, the I'm sorry, the casts, I'm still doing it. <laughs> you <laughs> know, to facilitate the casts um, enjoyment of the game, uh, then you you need to make their experience as frictionless as possible. And that's not going to look the same as making the, the guide's experience as frictionless as possible. Um, when, when, wait, hold on. When you're talking about friction, you're talking about meta friction because... I'm talking about meta friction, yes. Yeah, because there could be all kinds of friction in the fiction. Yeah, you that actually. And that it's yeah. just fun. Yeah, friction yeah. in. Yeah, that's that's fictional frictional. Um. No, nothing. All right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. The, but but no, no, no but like there's there's you want to have as little as little meta friction as possible. What you want to have as little distance between. I, as the player, want to do this thing and this thing happening within the fiction of the world and resolving conflicts or dramatic situations or challenging situations needs to be 
as streamlined as you can possibly make it from both perspectives. Yeah. No. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. No, we're here. here. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm. Yeah, I just I don't have anything uh, negative There's, to say to Yes. But okay. But so for me, in ashes, what that looks like is the GM rolling very few dice. And the reason I do that is because um, I think, and I think there's a lot of games that do this now where like, like Powered by the Apocalypse, uh, Blaze in the Dark, all those, and their clones and games that have taken inspiration from them. And even there, I've seen, I've seen versions of D&D &D that do this too, um, where they just put all of the dice on the player side or almost all the dice on the player side mm -hmm. because they realize that making NPCs, the 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 game master's characters, uh, if you make them equivalent in complexity to a player character, right? If you do what Shadowrun does and say, like, okay, they have all these the same stats as a player character, they have the same equipment, all this stuff. What you do is you're basically giving a person, you know, as many player characters to run as they have NPCs that the players are going to interact with, and it, it becomes a cognitive load that's not feasible at some point there's you know where that point is i think probably differs between game and gm but at some point there's a drop off where it yeah. takes so much time between and it that's just, where my advice about yeah. fake it until you have to make it comes into play right you uh, don't but, have to but, but make it in full detail all the time yeah but the game should not force you to have to define that detail until you need to is what i'm saying yeah if you are going to define the detail the details shouldn't be as complicated though because like mm -hmm. if you if you design the game so that a player is really only expected to be able to have to deal with a single character at the time and then you give one of the players like okay uh, everybody else gets one character, you get like six. Right. It's like, um, those six had better be really simple. <laughs> and if yeah. they're not, you have a problem. <laughs> right. Yeah. And and so I think the games that acknowledge that, that, that simple math of, you know, don't give the, the, the GM as much to do when running a character as a player it's like you don't want those things to be perfectly symmetrical i don't think um no, some things you need asymmetric the, stuff the only the only the the argument i put ag against that is mm -hmm. that if you have a pc creation system and an npc creation system and they're totally different they're by definition redundant because you're still making characters the only difference is who is playing them. Yeah, yeah I, but I, that I makes a big difference. I agree. Well, I'm saying you can use the same thing, but you can there's there's ways to simplify the math post post definition. I mean, they're both characters, but they have completely different purposes. Like they have completely different roles. Every every NPC for the most part is completely expendable, especially in combat. Like you're probably going to use them once and you will never see them again. Mm -hmm. So there's a huge difference between 
the level of detail you can put into something because otherwise you're basically just wasting time. Like if you have to give your your NBC like a level of complexity equal to a player character, it's like why? Because they're never going to use that. Give them enough information that is needed. If you know that you're never going to need more than X amount of information, then adding more than X information is redundant in and of itself. It also depends on the purpose of the NPC within the fiction. Like you're not going to put a whole lot of effort into a barmaid, but you are going to put that effort into the long running big bad guy who's pulling strings in the sh from the shadows the entire campaign. Yeah. But that's less about statting him out and more about creating the world. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's that's a fictional question rather than a mechanics question. Mm -hmm. But you still but the I think the effort is still expended. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's still there's Certainly. still a tremendous amount of effort to define <clears throat> what what influence the big bad has rather than how much influence the barmaid has. Although, you know, that could be, if you flipped those two, that might actually be an interesting game. Hmm. You know, where you just go deep into the history of the barmaid and then the big bad is just like, you know, he's got like three numbers attached to him or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do not know about that, but uh, you make that game and I'll try it. I All right, man. think it'd probably be more interesting if the barmaid was the big bad. Sure, that too. But then you've just added the big bad, though. So you're back to the original. Well, no, you I, said I know it doesn't fit. That's the barmaid with a big, long history. Mm -hmm. Then you also stat the big bad, who was also the barmaid, with only like a couple numbers and like a sentence of description. <laughs> At the end of the day, every bit of the GM's effort needs to be justified, hopefully, and like expressed within the fiction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think I think uh, I think systems that ask you to waste effort um, almost explicitly are uh, poorly designed. Does that is that? I mean, that's not really euphemistic, but <laughs> it's it's true. Yes. I mean. Yes, yeah. they're 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 bad. Yeah, they're they're just straight up bad. Like if if <sighs> frankly efficient at least. Yeah. No. That's the definition of bad. Yeah, frankly, if you have to make a something that is equivalent to a player character for every NPC, like just fuck off. Or you know, you we're, see, we're even. Done. But my point, my okay, my point is that even if the game only presents one system for making characters, regardless of what meta role they belong to or fictional purpose or whatever, it's still the GMs or even the players for that matter, like wisdom that tells them, oh, I can skip this part. Mm. But I think since we are, this is a game design podcast, we're talking about game design. We should be talking about ways that we can design uh, to make it easier for GMs and to give them tools to make interesting NPCs um, and make them easily. Because I think that there is a different set of things that makes an NPC because the 
roles of the um, cast and the GM are different. They occupy different spaces. So the characters that they play should also have different roles, so they need different things that define them. Now, they may share some similarities, but at the same time, they do, they do different things. And so they need to reflect that in their, in their statting and their fictional presence. Fictional presence, yes. Statting, I'm not 100% sure. I see where, I see where Carr's coming from because what you can do, you can have that, that character generation system hanging out in the background. And as the GM, you can pluck and just fill in the numbers ad hoc you know, with a, with a reasonable, if, if the game is well designed, you can do it with a reasonable expectation of, of getting the effect you want when you plug those ad hoc numbers in. Um, the problem go- comes when <clears throat> games ask, uh, ask GMs to keep track of like NPCs so complex that doing them ad hoc is almost impossible. So this becomes mm. the case. So you can see a gradient of this in pretty much every edition of Dungeons and Dragons, where you can easily summon up a goblin raid on a village, but doing a uh, uh, a battle between y- your your pl- player characters and a host of devils at sixteenth or seventeenth level is the entire evening because there's so many abilities flying across the table that you have to look up and remember how to define the effects of and there's just a lot going on and that was mainly i think in third edition that was actually probably the worst where you or not the worst but where that gradient was most pronounced because you would have i mean i having experienced high level third edition campaigns like i know that like those combats take a long fucking time at a high level because you are having to look up tons of shit like there's so much information at that point and as the gm running those high level encounters it is a slog it's a it's tough and you know i really appreciated fourth editions like taking away like 90 percent of that and making the monsters really easy to run and self-contained so you didn't have to look up spells in the player's handbook which don't get me started uh but that, that's the way yourself. it should i know i was trying not to I, that's not i'm not i'm not no that's that's another thing uh but can, you know at least making the monster stat blocks self-contained and putting all their abilities on the page with them so you could just open up the monster manual and reference that page only is good that is a stroke of design progress and then, and then in fifth edition, let's let's well, go back. Mainly that was we, a, we don't need to talk about D and D anymore. No, we don't. But except to illustrate the point that having having the same set of high level complex abilities available to both roles is not necessarily a good thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, that was a stroke of necessary design genius for D&D because D&D expects the players to do exactly what the game says and doesn't trust them to do anything on their own. Okay. 
Uh, I'm putting a stop to any more discussion of AD. Like we're Good we're done. Uh, at least for tonight. <laughs> no, at least at least for tonight. Um, right. I think we've reached we've reached our quota. I realize that quota is very small. Um, but that is that is our quota. It was, um, it, it was half an hour. Me, it's not small. But the counterpoint is, and this is where I'll let it go. A game that res- that respects the players to ignore or discard or create whatever they want doesn't need to have to make that distinction as mm. much. Mm-hmm. There are... Because it's already told them you don't have to do X, Y, and Z all the time. Mm. I still find it is generally easier and better in the most part to have basically simplified things for monsters and stuff like the enemies in my game they don't even use the like the they'll use the same stat names and they have the same general premise but even the basic stats like you know like your strength and your agility and reflexes they don't operate the same way for enemies as they do for player characters because enemies don't need to have stats for things like critical hits and such because it doesn't really add anything of value to the game. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I just ended up stripping out anything that wasn't relevant and like it's important for the player characters to have those options to be able to do things in particular ways that they find enjoyable but for the npcs you don't really need a, like the vast majority of what an interesting option for a player would be yeah in fact it's bad if you do because that that's part of that 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 um <clears throat> that sort of cognitive load that you're asking the gm to assume is you know all the choices for every every npc they're running and if you give them the same array as like you know it, you know a, a fuck it's it, a a spellcaster in any given game is generally going to be more complicated to use and so if you have you know enemy spellcasters that the the game master has to keep track of be this be this D&D, sorry, Fred, or Shadowrun or any other game in which magic comes as a set of, uh, or a list, rather, a long list of discrete abilities that are distinct from each other and have different rules and all this stuff, then you're asking them to assume the cognitive load of all of that material on top of other things and the way Cass describing it and the way 4th Edition did it with, like, we don't need that. We need... Here's these things that they're definitely going to use in three rounds of combat, you know, which is how long we expect them to survive. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, as I as I um, said earlier, because uh, we're talking about roles, um, and so we have to adapt the uh, stats to fit the roles. Now that doesn't mean that you don't have similar stats or like a a stripped down version of the of one stat or the other. Uh, but at the same time, like uh, players are, you know, occupy a different role than 
the monsters or the enemies or whatever. Um, and so they need to have different things that define them. Um, or need, I should say, need to be defined differently. Um, because they occupy those different roles. And that's kind of what we're talking about is what is what defines you and what you what you do when you're occupying a certain role. Mm-hmm. So uh, to get away f- to talk about where we so the th- we were talking uh, originally about what happens when we make roles more distinct or more fluid. Um, and so I think now we can move into a space where we're talking about um, a place where roles are very fluid, um, or at least more fluid than they are in the traditional role-playing game, which is, as Rob put it, so-called GMless. Which mm-hmm. um, I will cut car. I will cut car out before he says his thing. Which is that GMless games. My are thing. GMless. They are just <laughs> distributing the GM role. <laughs> um, around to all the players instead of concentrating it into one world. Mm-hmm. Yes, which is the thing that that Carr says, and he is right, of course. Yeah, um, and I, yeah. I, I agree and, with him. And sometimes it's not even distributing it around; it's sometimes it's handing it off, like a, mm-hmm. like a it's like it's a hot potato GMing, like where you pass it to the next guy, and then they get to say what happens for a little bit, and then yeah. What I've actually found is that. Strangely enough, GMless games are actually usually less fluid in a lot of ways in terms of the roles and such. Because, like, if the GM, you have an actual GM that is in control of everything, they change through like a bunch of different roles at pretty quickly, as we were mentioning earlier. Like, there's a lot of different little things that they go through. But if you have like a distributed GM game where they call it like GMless, and each player is given a very specific thing that they're supposed to be doing, then they actually don't change their roles nearly as much, and it actually ends up being far less fluid. Oh, oh, oh yes. If you have... Yeah, no. Well, that's that's one type of, of distributed. It's one GM. type. Yes, it's, it's not a, the only type, but no. that's why I said the ones that are distributed in yeah. that particular way. Right. I... How does Microscope do it? They have, is it, it, shit, I can't remember. It's been a while since I read it. Um, well, the reason, the reason why the thing that Kat's describing happens is because when you have a GM, all those duties are in one head and there's no communication blockage about world building or NPC stuff or plot line or whatever, like however a game may distribute different, like distinct pieces of the GM duties around the table. Once you do that, then everybody has to be communicating and enter kind of a hive mind status in order to really Mm. replicate the single GM. Mm-hmm. And that creates a third conversation around the table of a the meta, whatever's going on, the fiction, and then you've got the GM conversation. That is actually, a and the GM conversation is what doesn't happen, and that's why 
those kinds of games feel less fluid. Hmm. Well, what I think about it kind of wraps up the game as like an AI GM? Like, I know it's not strictly role playing, but like Kingdom Death. Right. Were you playing it? Yeah. <clears throat> I think that, well, I mean, there, I don't know if there are games like that, actually. There are RPGs like that. I mean, I guess the there Lone are. Wolf RPG system is basically that thing where there's an AI and, you, but the AI is like the book, right? So it's, hmm. yeah, I, I mean, okay. there are. Uh, I, yeah, I guess I should probably say some words here. Okay, Iron Sworn is a game that exists. Uh, it how it does it. I feel it's important to talk about is it distributes the GM role by making the GM decisions like by relying more on its dice in a weird way, and it just and giving like how do how do I describe how it hands the how it hands narrator and cat and NPC. Oh, to people, it's interesting, and I'm real. And all of a sudden, I forgot what I was talking about. Also, microscope uh, has scene leaders, and people can jump in on any scene that they like. And you just basically hand out roles for important characters in scenes. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Right. <clears throat> so, would you say that those are good solutions to distributing? Okay, so uh, microscope works for microscope, but uh, if you wanted to, but uh, it only works for a very distinct thing that where it jump where it depends heavily on short scenes where people jump around a lot. Like if it wasn't, if it didn't have the environment that it was going for, it would not their model wouldn't work as well. Uh, as for Iron Sword, uh, it's. Systems for measuring progress are actually kind of good, but it has some issues that I need to play test it, play with it more before I willing to give complete committed results to. Sorry. Fair enough. Yep. Yeah, okay. GM full games and every variant of distributed GM games have a different area of storytelling and gameplay that they're good for like no matter how you change the gm cast relationship it's going to affect the storytelling possibilities mm -hmm. yeah but that's intentional right i mean that's yeah the yeah. Yeah, it's the, idea. The, yeah the the important part is if you whatever GM cast dynamic you settle on, you have to like it's going it's only going to work if you recognize what it facilitates and what it doesn't. Yeah, like if you're works. if you're doing a distributed GM setup where every player has a piece of the GM pie and they never exchange or whatever then it's very difficult to do a story like a mystery or any kind of dis detective scheme because they're also players or they're also the cast. Yeah, I'm just going to quickly say this before we move on too far on. Uh, the only uh, 
let's call let's go with GM Bull. Sure, why not? Uh, the only one of those games that I found that I would actually play a long term campaign in is Ironsworn. <laughs> like a lot of them are not like well suited. I find to like continued character use, although that doesn't mean they're bad games it just means that i find that a lot of them are more leading towards one shots oh god i want to talk about uh what god what is the version called final bed of it but i don't think i can get my thoughts on it super coherent right now <laughs> i'm just gonna throw out a bunch of names for different uh <laughs> for different gmple systems until it just make everybody look them up <laughs> Yeah, that'll work. You mean GMless? Yeah, GMless. GMless, whatever. Yeah, whatever. Um, yeah. So-called GMless. <laughs> there, I finally said it. Yeah, you said it, but that's Thanks. fine. Uh, whatever. As long as you're not saying it as a bad thing, then we're fine. <laughs> as long as you're not of the camp that they can never work and that's terrible, then I don't have to argue with you. <laughs> I'm only against it if the designer is doing it for the wrong reasons. And usually that wrong reason is they hate the GM role because they've felt abused by it in the past. All right. Um, so we're, we're getting into like uh, personal vendettas. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know which one he's talking about. <laughs> Designed by trauma. <laughs> uh every to be day fair, i agree with him on that though like uh, if you, you don't have the right reasons for doing things you tend to also have that corrupt what you're trying to do but uh let's move on um so another question that we have that we're wanting to pose is at at the table where we were talking about earlier we we're talking about the character roles which are the roles at which we interact with the fiction. Um, <clears throat> and so we want to discuss about whether um, these are, these should be distinct or they are distinct. Um, or because like, you know, in your tradition, in often your traditional playing game, you have your tank and your healer and your rogue and your blah, 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 blah. Um, but there's also a lot of games that have non-distinct character roles. And so I guess that that's kind of, to, to use the crummy analogy I was using earlier, um, is it interesting enough to put different restrictions on everybody's hands that are interacting with fiction? Or, um, sh you know, should those roles be more generalized? It Again, it comes down to the kind of gameplay you want. Like if if you want to, if your if your design goal is to have you know a traditional perfect party, where are where there are highly distinct party roles, then yeah, you kind of need that. But if your premise or your concept is not to distinct party roles like oh I don't know you have a game about the alien invasion has just come down and 
everybody in the office building is trying to survive. Well, those are not heroic characters. They're not going to differ in ability as much as, you know, fighter, wizard, thief, cleric. You're going to have accountant and janitor and stuff like that. And fucking Karen. mundane stuff. And fucking Karen. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, like, the distinction within the party kind of has to correlate with the possibilities that you're designing toward. Yeah, you're, 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 like, yeah, I agree. I mean, like, your normal normal quote-unquote fake characters are not going to have the like the level of mechanical distinction that um you get in something like a game that's geared towards uh being fun in combat in different ways mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. your dnds your shadow runs your your pathfinders your take your pick and and let's face it most games differentiate party rules mostly based on combat Very yeah most of, time, else. most of the time yeah yeah occasionally you'll have something like the quote-unquote talkie character or the skill monkey and generally what that means is you have this extra role outside of combat it is but it is not generally something you do in yes. combat, but it's it's an extra. It's kind of weird that I realized that my game is one of the. Actually, I can't think of any other off the top of my head, though somebody might have run into one, where there are different talking roles. Like, I can't think of any other one where it's like you can. Well, I can have, think of like, one example. Different types. Although I guess we'll also probably say it. Uh, although that might have been a few revisions ago hey do you still have guile talk war talk and force talk mm-hmm. okay uh, okay i wasn't so. sure if you even still did and i forgot I, about that so i yeah. i mean blades in the dark kind of has different talking characters mm-hmm. like yeah i forgot about that because in my game of blades there was one person whose gimmick was they they took all the the things in category four and Got them as high as possible and took nothing in any other category. Uh, yeah, the, there's talkie characters, and then and there's always there's you know variations within the skill monkey character, mm-hmm. like the professor versus the engineer stuff like that. Right, the intimidating guy, the 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 smooth talker, the fast talker. Yeah, the diplomat. Yeah, in Star Wars they did uh, a couple of. A couple of different versions of Star Wars made the diplomat and intimidating guy like combat roles, like as in the diplomat could yell at someone and and give them make them less effective in combat. And yeah, I've seen that pretty common. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they're also different outside of combat because one of them will be good at getting their way through intimidation and and force, and then the other guy will be good at getting their way through convincing others that their way is correct uh so there yeah i mean there there's those are broad i mean i mean i do that in my game too because like i i have uh, engage which is my 
talk or interact with another entity, conscious entity skill, and then broadly under, uh, oh, I changed the name of my attributes too. So now, now it's grace, force, and mind. So, okay. Yeah. I and like so, guile, but it's okay. Yeah. I'm not that bad. <laughs> guile's still in it, but it's, it's, it does something slightly different now. Um, anyway, so having, having a, a forceful engagement is different than having a graceful engagement is different than having a mindful engagement, basically. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Right. I'm glad yeah. that I'm not alone. Yes. <laughs> I am yeah. also glad. No, but, and I think there's other there's other games um, that we're probably just forgetting that have those distinctions in them. Sure. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, but as long as we're talking about different games, we should probably talk about games that have shifted the balance between um what the roles are and you know are I sh the what yeah what the roles are what they do and you know what their what their roles are you know what their um what what that role what they do is, what, what they, they are, do what they do um <laughs> we're, shut we're up, back Kat. to the meta roles right we're off of you know we're what? back to meta roles right we're off of the party roles yeah <laughs> yeah um cat Come, just come to the freaking United States and fight me, okay? <laughs> um, but Wait, anyway, you, know, chainsaws, you should have seen me earlier today. There, it's like three separate situations where I just completely mind blanked on like people's names, or like I couldn't remember the name of Detroit for like about thirty seconds straight. It was great. <laughs> nice, <laughs> um, but. I think one of the games that if we're, if we're talking about this, the thing that comes to mind immediately for me is Apocalypse. Mm -hmm. Because it, it did shift the balance between what the, what the GM role was, or it, as they call it, the MC. Um, what the MC role was and what the cast role was. Because it... I know there are other games I've done this before, I don't want to just put this on Apocalypse World. Um, took all dice rolling away from the GM. So, and the GM, the, or the MC, sorry, MC, or the crew, only is a, or is primarily, at least mechanically, a reactionary force. They only make their main actions when the players do something, um, mm -hmm. either when they get a bad roll or they, you know, act within the fiction. Um, and so it, it changed that G that MCGM crew role from a more proactive role to a reactive role. Um, and it turned the player or the cast role, sorry, the cast role into a more proactive role rather than a reactive role. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and then, and there's, I think that's a good, thing generally mm -hmm. um because it allows the players i mean i do the same thing in ashes because i it allows the players the chance to follow or even set their own incentives and follow their own story and not have to like one of the one of the problems with having pre-generated adventures is that they have to be characters for those games have to be generic enough that they slot into pre-generated adventures and 
you can't do that in something like Blades in the Dark or, or Apocalypse World because as soon as you they're you, they're not like the you can't count on those worlds to be the same when an adventure starts. You know what I mean? Like they're they're like I see, I always see books of like here just drop in these thirty encounters into your game. Yeah, you that, don't, that only works for. Yeah, that only works for games where the characters are commodities. Or they don't really have motivation except for the motivation that the game hands them, you know, where it's, there's no, yeah. So, so there's a, a, a different structural problem before we even get to the meta discussion in those types of games, because it's a, it's, you're giving, you're giving the play, like a subset of the players, the cast, the task of, um, how do I phrase this? You're tr- you're giving them. No, I think I lost it. Lost it. <laughs> Damn. But how do you think that should be designed in? Right. I mean, so the idea is that like you have to, you if you want. So the the idea. Okay, so you're moving away from this this authorial control as the GM, right? You're, right. you're distributing authorial control to players in different ways. One of those ways is uh, allowing them to detail fictional outcomes of their dice rolls, right? Like having more control over what exactly the fictional, the fiction looks the moment, like when they succeed or fail. Yeah, the moment to moment narration. Yeah, the mo- exactly. The moment to moment narration is, is handed to the players. Um, in, in Apocalypse World, they do it in like inside the dice rolls, which is really sneaky and and a pretty cool idea <clears throat> having those um, those the small chart of the 2d6 rolls where it's like six minus uh, what is it seven plus ten plus where um, seven to nine but yes seven to nine I'm sorry uh, and and uh, each those results saying things like you know describe how it's X uh, and allowing players to actually describe the fictional world that isn't that isn't necessarily within their character. The the per, that isn't necessarily in the purview of their character's agency, direct agency, but to detail the world around their characters as well. Mm-hmm. And also, isn't binary, which is a tremendous shift of thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one of the important things about those um, part by the apocalypse uh, descriptors is that they are very rarely binary. They very rarely, in fact, have numbers attached. Usually, right. they are descriptors. <clears throat> They are um, like from uh, from Monster Hearts, like they're get embarrassed and act awkward, or um, promise them something you think they want, or something right. like that. Right. Um, they are things that you can interpret, um, but that also, you know, that that instruct that restrict. It's um, always interesting choices. I learned in video game design was. If you have something that's binary, you can wind up very easily with something that's completely unbalanced. Not just that it's unbalanced, but that it's physically impossible to ever balance it, no matter what it is. Mm -hmm. Because you can wind up with something that it's like, well, if it's on, it's too powerful. If it's off, it's completely useless. There's no middle ground in between. (laughs) 
you need to have some wiggle room that some dials that you can change kind of thing, right? If you don't give yourself any kind of control like that, you, you can't fix the game if it ends up broken short of, you know, basically removing something entirely. Yeah, mm. binary mechanics tend to adapt least well to strange situations. Yeah, that's certainly true. Um, are they, there... They, and they tend to also generate a small subset of possibilities. Um, are there other games that people can think of that have shifted this balance, uh, maybe in a different way? Uh, I'm gonna, I'm, that comes to mind. That um, I'm gonna. No, wait, go ahead, Rob. Rob, go for it. Yeah. Oh no, it's just just fiasco because that's one that's that's it's a role playing game where where the where the, the GMing role is totally distributed. Mm -hmm. um, I I don't know. I mean, I don't think that was the first first one, but it was the first one I think I heard of where it was totally. Oh no, you know what? The first one I heard of was um, shit was it in a wicked age. I think so. Uh, it was a, which is a pretty short Vincent Baker game, but it was, it, I think it came out like 2003, 2004. And that one was a total round robin game where you, you each had a character, but you got to describe like, so the player to your left and your right had different um, pulls on your character's scenes. Basically, so when you were playing your character, the player to your left and your right to do different stuff to you, and then when you took over, when somebody else was playing their character, then you would do different stuff to them. And I, th I think there was a way of interjecting or something like that when you had if there are certain ways you could roll your stats and like wrest control away from one of the other uh, GMs to to do that. But I yeah, I can't remember exactly. I'd have to reread it, but. Um, so I, that, that was the first instance I, I remember seeing an RPG where, where there was no, there was no game master. Uh, I, so I'm just reading a quick page on, um, in a wicked age, it references a game master. A couple of times. Oh, it does. So it seems like it actually has an explicit game master. I don't know if, if this is wrong okay, or if you're maybe misremembering, I'm, maybe I'm misremembering or maybe I'm misremembering the title actually. Yeah. Hmm. But it sounds like it's a, um kind of standard um, PC GM or uh, cast GM setup. So anyway, uh, just to just to clarify that, I'm, I'm sure Rob is talking about something that actually exists. Um, yeah. Probably just missed the forgot the name or something. Or the one I was going to suggest is fate because mm. it pretty much is like the go to example for a game that has a meta currency that is designed to let the players express agency in ways that would normally belong to the GM. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it systematizes that thing um, and very explicitly shifts that balance uh, to put it in the hands of players. And then the other kind of thing I was going to suggest is not a single game, but a design element of games 
mm-hmm. is games that explicitly mechanize character motivation. Yeah. Mm, okay. Um, can you give a quick reason why? Because having a line on your character sheet that says motivation or drive or whatever kind of limits how much that game can just hand a generic motivation to the players. Mm. That's a good mm. thing. Yes. And it lets it leads to ultimately stronger characters and deeper role playing. If motives are because undefined. The, if the motives are defined. Oh, if are defined, yes. Okay. Yeah. So wait a second. I maybe I'm mis- maybe I'm misunderstanding your point. You were you were saying that that characters with defined motives lose something? Other way around. No. Okay. I'm I'm saying characters with defined motives limit the generic motive that the game hands out. Oh, yeah. I see. What you're saying. Yeah, okay, game can't it. really just be like, right. okay, well, you just do whatever the module says to do because mm-hmm. your mm-hmm. characters themselves have their own stuff that they're trying to accomplish and do, and you right. can't genericify it too much. Like my game, you can't end up turning it into like. A D&D module, you have to have more to it than that. It has to be more open-ended. You have to be able to account for what the players did. Mm-hmm. Right, and if the if the characters have their own motivations and or are otherwise three-dimensional, then that's extra fodder that the GM can exploit to make the game about the characters. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Are there any other games, or actually, I guess now that Card mentioned that, are there any other, like, ideas or mechanics um, that really shift balance um, or that change the roles in a significant way that people want to talk about or discuss? Um, the one, the one I, we, Fate was already mentioned, but I think the, um, Something important to note about fate is the flow of meta currency in it, where instead of the GM role deciding X happens to a character, they have there there's a there's a mechanism by which they can affect the character and the character gains something. And so rather than I that's a that's a move in like that's you're, you, the, the GM still has authorial control in that instance, but the player has a right of refusal as well. Like when you affect a character with a fate point in fate as the GM, if you, um, uh, uh, what is it, invoke one of their aspects, trigger one of their aspects, I can't remember. The invoke. Invoke it is. Yeah. yeah. Um, negatively. If you do it negatively as a GM, you, gave, you give them a fate point and they can say, no, I don't want it. And then that thing doesn't happen. And you can, I think you can reoffer it up to three times. And if they, or something like that, there, there's some rule for that. But yeah, the, um, the main thing is, is the, the, the right of refusal is something interesting uh, that 
fate hands to players, which is not, which is a kind of authorial control. It's it's reactive rather than proactive authorial control, at least in that case. Uh, but that's, that's something interesting to note where you can't, where, where they built in a blocker sort of. Well, okay. If we're going to stick on that, then like my game kind of shifts it in a way because uh, I have a thing called shanks mm -hmm. where a player can either modify a die roll or inject a, a narrative truth. Like whether or not it's apparent in the moment is another matter, but they can inject a, a fictional truth mm -hmm. and they, there's a, there's a currency for that. So like you can like in battle, one player can roll uh, to hit and the dice come up, whatever. And some other player can say, I'm going to shank that and improve the roll by like, I don't know, 50, because it's a percentile system. Mm -hmm. And the GM decides, or no, the, the other player says, I'm going to shank that, and which direction. The GM decides how much, but then the acting player can refuse it. Mm. So... Yeah, it's it's not player versus GM as it is in fate. It's the players affecting each other. Right. That's interesting. How much that I, I'm that creates a different dynamic though. Like there's a, there's 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 an is there I th I think I remember you talking about like there's an in the incentive to do that is an is an XP boost. Is that still the case in the or an XP? Uh, Rather or something like that. There used to be like the 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 economics of it are much simplified now. I don't remember how I hmm. did that, but um, yeah, the only reason there is an economy to it is so that players don't go like completely hog wild with it and fuck up their story. I see. So there's a constraint like on the amount they can mess with their each other yeah ah. like not, not the amount but how often okay hmm. so okay um that leads us into another interesting um point that we wanted to discuss which is how do these roles that we have set up interact um how do we design for these interactions um, and in what way, you know, in what ways are the interactions good and what ways are the interactions bad and how do we make sure that the interactions that we have between these roles are positive and that they aren't, um, necessarily, uh, well, I, I won't say adversarial because some people are going for that, but that they aren't unnecessarily adversarial, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I think the appropriate word to go back to at this point is Rob's. That is friction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do we how do we avoid friction? Um, Lots of lubrication. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, design lubrication. Wrong. 
No? Okay. I I don't even know what you're talking about, Rob, but okay. <laughs> I don't know either, man. I'm just... uh, nice. All right. But no, no, no. <laughs> it is reducing friction. That is, that's, that's the main, that's what design work is. I mean, it is, it is getting from point A to point B with less effort or smoother or prettier or mm-hmm. something. That's just one way to put it. Yeah. Okay, so we should design around reducing the friction between these roles. That's how we kind of what I've done. Yeah, I've been, or at least I've. Been, that's my. That's conceptualizing it as reducing friction has helped make mm-hmm. the, the my systems flow into each other better. When I go through my 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 play loop and I you know, imagine myself as players or, or the guide, um, or actually the cast and, or the guide, I go through, go, I go through the various motions and I see where it annoys me. <laughs> and that's probably where the friction is. And then I have to figure out a way to make it not annoying or make it appear not annoying, which sometimes is good enough. Um, but there's, there's, there's a number of ways to do that. One of the ways is just reducing the amount of mental math you have to do. That's a, that's, I mean, if you have to do a lot of mental math, that's, that's like a point of friction for a lot of people. Um, if you have to remember more than three factors at any time during the game, that's probably, uh, going to be a point of friction for some people like. There's more than three modifiers you have to take into account at any given point. That's for me. For me, a big one is if it takes more than two discrete player actions to resolve a fictional action, that's friction. Hmm. Meaning, like two more than Meaning, two dice rolls. Yeah. Yeah. Like roll to hit, roll damage. That's your limit. If you're doing, if your game requires more than that. It needs to be simplified. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would agree. I think there's I, I think there's I, I plenty of examples of games that, that have extraneous dice rolls just for the sake of it, it seems it's bizarre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing I'd want to stress there is streamlined more than simplified. Because there is a yes. difference. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Streamlined is correct. Yeah. I, I do try to emphasize that streamlined is when you reduce the complexity of something, but you maintain the functionality, simplifying it, you're sacrificing functionality to get that uh, simplification. Mm-hmm. I will say that I think the whole roll for damage thing is entirely unnecessary and should be killed, but <laughs> that's a personal opinion. Look, one roll I... for one thing is good. You have to do two, I guess you have to do two, but it's not well, yeah. that's the main justification for D and D justifying using all the polyhedrals. Yeah, and and you'll notice that Shadow the Demon Lord dumped that, <laughs> which is one of the reasons it's my favorite version of D and D. Yeah. Stop bashing D and D. It's it it does a lot. Yeah. Of so wait, wait a second. Wait a second. I. I said no more D&D talk. Rob, yeah. 
I was many demerits to you. God damn it. Ten points from Slytherin. Damn. Oh, shit. <laughs> See, this is when you don't get married. You just get seen in trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. Um. This, okay. Does anyone else have anything to say about um, how the roles interact? Um, you have to find your balance of who gets to influence what and when. So, like, mm-hmm. in traditional design thinking, like, all the world building and plotting was fell under the GM's purview. And so many things, which left the players as little more than passengers on the ride. But modern design is really ultimately about empowering the players. And really good modern design does not even treat that as a zero-sum game. Hopefully, hopefully we're all past treating that as a zero-sum game, but that's how... Okay, yeah, but out of curiosity, did you mean, like, zero-sum among, like, the players themselves, or the GM and the players happen? Like, the GM and the players, I think, is what he meant, but... Uh, yeah, between yeah, the GM... Where are you yeah. GM and players again? Oh. Uh, yeah, I, I can't even... Yeah. <laughs> terrible. That's what I was trying to do. Yeah. yeah. See what I'm forgetting words today? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, darn it. Like, I knew I was using the wrong word. I couldn't even remember the right one. I was hoping to correct myself after a few seconds and I couldn't remember what I was supposed to be correcting it to. Yeah. The, well, the I, zero sum I was talking about is GM versus cast. Hmm. <clears throat> now, I remembered a game or even not, wrong, so you're fine. <laughs> or even not treating the game as versus in the first place. Like, if you design from a completely collaborative approach, the interactions instantly change. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think I think most games have recognized a, a big enough subset of games have recognized that that's actually what's going on at the table and have started to design towards it. Um, I, I Apocalypse yeah. Worlds is one of those early ones where, you know, uh, Blaze in the Dark is one, like, be the player's fan. Be, the be a fan of the players. players. Yeah, be or be a fan player. of the... Well, it says be a fan of the players, but using our lingo, be a fan of the yeah. cast. Yeah, yeah, I don't think that's the only method, but definitely I do think that the adversarial concept was a ridiculous idea, especially when it was, like, set up yeah. during a time when the GM had pretty much omnipotent power. And it's like, yeah, yeah, you have to defeat your players. Also, you have full control to cheat in any way you want. How did um, anybody think that was a good idea? Just, just <laughs> in basic yeah. rules. It was the eighties. They were doing a lot of cocaine. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm actually going to accept that as an answer. <laughs> good, thank God. That's never worked before, but. All right, I'm glad it's worked this one time. For a slightly more realistic answer, uh, they came from they came from war games, and uh, they there had they, to be uh, a conflict somewhere. Yeah, and also, and also like 
they didn't have concepts to build off, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they were they were blazing new territory, so the concepts hadn't really been recognized yet. Yeah. But here we are, fifty years later, and we we can look back and say, oh, here's the origins of every of this and this and this, and here's how modern games are realizing that when older games really couldn't because they didn't understand fully what, what they was were doing, which is something that's a little strange to me when you don't even understand like the most basic aspects of what's going on in your game. It's like that seems really strange to me. Hmm. Well like, it's... regardless of Regardless of even being like, well, nobody had ever done it before and it was based on this other thing. It's like, well, you still want to think about what you're doing and why you're doing it rather than just throwing stuff together because this is what they did in the past. Like, right. we know well, that's bad design kind of the... just in general. Well, contemporary thinking evolves. It's, it's kind of like... We understand what electricity is now. We know that it's electrons moving through material. But two centuries ago, electricity was, you know, whatever, you know, invented thing moving through the ether. Like, you can have a thing and have some comprehension of it, but not full comprehension of it. Hmm. Right, okay. I think I see where you're going with that. I suppose, yeah. But, I don't know. At, at least a fundamental basic grasp seems like it would kind of be important. Like, well, this is really low-level stuff. All right. Um, well, I think now that we are getting into the weeds a bit. Oh, Kevor, what do you have, you have something to say? Kevor. Yes, I do. I do. Uh, it's, the problem is, like, uh, especially with early development, uh, if it doesn't seem broken, you don't know it's, you don't know to fix it. That's true. <laughs> like, if it's something you have to examine from a metatextual level, it's probably not going to be something that you're going to develop early. Until you've iterated a bit, for lack of a yeah. better term. Anyway, that's just all I had to say on that. That's, no, that's true because. Oh, <laughs> these are the themes of the game. I understand now where I'm going. <laughs> Fantastic. But I had already like done a hundred and some pages of material and I thought it was coming together. And I was like, oh, no, this is actually what the game's about. Got it. Oh, and shit. I could only do that having gone through the motions and building something incoherent mm -hmm. that, that that screamed its incoherency at my face until I recognized it. Actually, it was pointed out to me because <laughs> yeah, you, I thought it was perfectly coherent. And <laughs> you were like, uh, no. And I was like, oh, no, they're right. And so or, or another example is like the the novel as a concept existed for the better part of two centuries 
until writers started examining the art form itself during the early 20th century. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Like there, nobody was talking about it, you know, in the way that, that in, in the abstract. Right. All right. Well, uh, since we are now discussing um, the specifics of how novels evolve, I think we may be pretty well, far the off. Specifics the specifics of how literary criticism evolved. But yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, uh, I think I will now ask if anybody has any last comments, um, anything they think we missed that they want to bring up um, before we wrap everything up and uh, finish up this episode. So... Then we have any last uh, things that they last jabs they want to get in. Uh, we we can't bring up the idea again, right? Uh, absolutely cool. fucking not. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, okay. I then I think that was another episode of Flail Forward. We have flailed <laughs> forward successfully again. Um, well. By whose metrics? Mostly flailing. Mostly hey. flail, not so much forward. Hey, yeah. you know what? As long as we got... It's more like quap than anything else, really. Hey, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what? We, we, we pressed those buttons. We got the foot, like, you know, we did two steps this time instead mm -hmm. of just one. Um, so that's something. Yeah. But Face again, down the mud. Yeah. Well, we, we ended up there, but we started out, we started out strong. Head tall. <laughs> um but that is another episode uh i again i am fred uh this week i had with me mr carr miss cat and cavoir mark yeah. and of course rob mm -hmm. and mel, and mel. Who, yes sorry and mel of course um and i thank you for joining us uh, and you can find us on all the major social media sites as well as some of the smaller ones. We do have a Pornhub account. That's not a joke. I'm serious. It exists. <laughs> I, uh, Rob, is there anything on the Pornhub account? Hey, you said on all the major social media sites. <laughs> I like, I'm pretty sure we actually we got, are. We got all our bases, including third base. <sighs> Well, uh, it's more like nice. on Pornhub. <laughs> um, you, you can also find us on Tinder if you live in the right area. I'm not going to tell you which area that is, but uh, it is an area within the um, the world. Major metropolitan <laughs> area. Uh, Major metro no, somewhere. Not. Somewhere. Somewhere. Um, and, uh, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed our discussion and, uh, I hope you all have a good week and a good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. night.